in the middle of an 11 week series on the topic of science and faith. And for those of you who were here the first week, remember this is kind of falling into three little subsets. Uh, the first one is sort of some foundational. What do we mean by faith? What do we mean by science? And where does this idea that they're in conflict come from? Which is what we'll focus on next week. Then we're going to move into a period of uh, talking about some of the more recent developments within science. Three weeks on that. And then the last four weeks we'll look at sort of how does all this stuff interface with uh, the things that we hold to be true, the things that we believe. Now for those who were not here last week and for the rest of us a quick review. Uh, last week we looked at the topic of faith. And really here's the short Reader's Digest version. It is indicative or fa of faith or religion that there are certain core beliefs uh, of which God is not the most fundamental. The most fundamental probably is, is that for faith or for relig religion, there's a belief that there is more to reality than just that which comes to us through our senses. And so religion has talked, uh, not just the Christian faith, but many faiths have talked for millennia about something called a spiritual dimension. And we get uh, vocabulary of the supernatural, the transcendent, the metaphysical, all of which is language saying that there's more than just what we perceive with the senses. Secondly, the way that we know about that reality is that we have a, a access to knowledge through something called revelation. This is distinctly different from empirical data that comes to us from science. Uh, traditionally, revelation falls into two broad categories. The first is natural, and natural seeing simply is like the psalm says, the heavens declare the glory of God. That you can look into the universe, you can use your senses, and there's some things that you can intuit just using your mind and your senses. But most importantly, the primary source of revelation for faith or for religion is not natural revelation, what's called special. All religions are based on the idea that there is a special source of revelation. Now, within the Christian community, within the Jewish community, within the uh, Muslim community, this is uh, pretty much held to be scripture of some type, whether it's the Quran, the Torah, the New Testament, whatever. Uh, the third belief that's sort of distinct of, of uh, faith and of religion is that there is a being behind the reality that is the universe. There is a God. And that this God is conscious and aware and, and more importantly is at work not only bringing the universe into existence but is involved in the universe in some kind of a way interacting with the universe. And then the last thing we looked at is the idea that uh, faith is always expressed in a worldview. In other words if it does not we cannot comprehend it. If knowledge does not come to us in a way that makes sense we simply cannot process it and uh, throughout the ages, some of the great minds have talked about what something called accommodation, that God accommodates the revelation to where we are so that we can understand it, so that we can comprehend it. Uh, and over the centuries, the Christian faith has been expressed in many different worldviews, ancient Hebraic and then into the Babylonian, which Genesis 1 embodies. Um, then we fell in love with Greek culture and particularly Plato and then in the Middle Ages, we shifted from Plato to Aristotle. Then we have the modern worldview, and we would say today that we are in the post-Einstein worldview. So the faith being articulated in all those. So that's a sort of a thumbnail of faith. What we want to do today, because we're, we're building up to this issue of what is this conflict? 
that we hear so much about between faith and science. So we looked at faith. So let's look a little bit about science today and what's going on with that. Uh, we're dealing with what's called the nature of science, what it is, what it isn't. Uh, if you're going to go and buy books on it, this is roughly falls into the category of philosophy of science. Philosophy of science is about what is the nature of science? What can it do? What are its limits? How does it work? And, and great minds over the last several centuries have basically talked about that work. Now, disclaimer number one, moi, not a scientist. Scientists want to be, okay? Uh, I love science. I subscribe to about eight different scientific magazines. I try to stay up. So, yeah, that doesn't want to be. I know, it's sad. Uh, <laughs> I try to follow science in several different categories. I try to stay up with it. Uh, not the math. <coughs> not the math. Uh, you know, I, c I cannot go there. Uh, but conceptually, what's going on with that? You know, and the nature of science is such that if you're, if you're very, very, very knowledgeable in one arena of science does not mean you know anything about any other arena of science. You remember the definition of a PhD? person who knows more and more about less and less, so they know absolutely everything about absolutely nothing, you know? Uh, well, there's a certain amount of truth there because as you advance in education, of course, you're focusing on a narrower and narrower area, but you're learning an intense amount of information about it. But a scientist does not mean they know all there is about science in all categories. It's just the nature of it. So here's the backdrop. Just a quick painting of this, and then we'll move on. Modern science is without a doubt the greatest success story in the history of the human race. There simply are no other contenders out there. Over the last 400 years, beginning with Copernicus to Newton and moving forward from there, modern science has literally transformed our lives. It has literally transformed the world that we're a part of. You can honestly say, without exaggeration, that the world and the universe, pre-scientific revolution, post-scientific revolution, were fundamentally different, okay? It was a tectonic shift. Um, it reshaped how we understood the cosmos from the largest scale. Just think of the Hubble telescope, uh, developments in cosmology, you know, all that kind of stuff, down to the smallest. We, you know, did not, well, not too long ago, in the early 1900s, I did not know this until recently, we did not know there was more than one galaxy. As early as the 1900s, we did not know there was more than one galaxy. We looked at the Milky Way and thought that was it. Now, when I went to school, I was taught that the atom was the smallest thing there was. Boy, is that out of date. Electrons, neutrons, protons, the smallest things there are. No. What goes, what's the next level? Quarks. What are quarks made of? Gluon. And by the way, we're now about five levels below that, okay? It just keeps going. The more science progresses, uh, it's just amazing. There's over 200 subatomic particles that have been identified, everything, and the list is growing. Science has been able to consistently, and that's important, consistently describe how the universe works in ways that have immediate practical effects for the world that you and I live in. Who here has an iPad or something owned by, manufactured by a Apple? You know? <laughs> quantum physics, okay? You hold in your hand quantum physics, anything electronical. Uh, transforming the world that we live in. It, it's amazing how little time it took to do that. Uh, how long has the iPad been out there? 
Not long. And I can't live without mine. Can you live without yours? Okay. You don't want to live with it? Good. That's more, that's more for me. Okay, without it. Okay. <laughs> so, you don't want it? I'll take it. Okay. Uh, everybody living up, you know, what's the latest thing? Apple? Anybody play? No, I won't go there. Apple 5? No, I won't go there. Okay. No aspect of life has been untouched by the science of technology. Now, lots of things flow out of this, but one of them is something called a scientific mindset. It's also called a scientific worldview. What that means is, is that science has produced a way of looking at the universe. Uh, it shapes how we perceive the world, what's possible and what's not possible, what is real and what is not real, and how we arrive at what we know. There's a, a way of approaching the world with that. Now, the scientific revolution occurred in terms of history in the blink of an eye. Less than 200 years from beginning to end of the basic framework of this uh, falling into place. It started with a guy named Nicholas Copernicus. Remember him? Okay, had this radical idea that maybe in spite of common sense, in spite of sensory uh, perception, in spite of what the universities were teaching, in spite of what everybody else believed, that maybe the sun did not go around the earth, but the earth, in fact, went around the sun. He had no evidence for this. He had no science for it, but he intuited. Turns out that he was right. In less than two centuries there, Sir Isaac Newton, Principia Mathematica, the final laws of physics of gravity, and the world fell into shape. Now, this is the world that Einstein destroyed, by the way. Uh, but what do we exactly mean by science? Now, this is where it kind of gets fun for me. There are myths about science. Now, there's myths about religion. We know that. Did you know that there's myths about science? That a lot of what people think they know about science is, in fact, just dead wrong. Uh, so let's have a little bit of fun with this. Number one, who here has heard the term scientific proof? Okay. Have you heard the term scientific truth? Or my favorite, we can scientifically prove that something is true. Now, that language is just out there. We use that language all the time. That's just the way we talk. Here's the problem. Those are all myths. Scientifically speaking, none of those things are even remotely true. There is neither proof nor truth in science. And any scientist with any kind of training can tell you that real quick. Uh, these do not have anything to do with science. Uh, it's not a minor point. It strikes at the very heart of what science is. So we need to clarify this. Because if we're going to talk about science and faith and where the rub is between the two, if there is such, we need to be real clear about what science is because in our culture, we have voices telling us that some things are scientific when they're not. So example, when a recent book says that God is a failed hypothesis and that we can scientifically prove that God does not exist, first thing you should know is that's a rotten science, okay? Matter of fact, that's not even remotely scientific. Even though it's said in the name of science, doesn't make it science. So what, you know, what is science, what isn't? Now, first misconception. Science is about the business of proof. In fact, science cannot prove anything. Proof is not even a scientific term or concept. And the term scientific proof is an oxymoron. They flat out contradict each other because if you know what science is and you know what proof is, the two are mutually contradictory categories. They simply cannot go together. Proof is about finality. 
You know, when something's proved, proved, it settles it. That is not the nature of science. All findings in science are contingent, right? They await the next development, you know. Uh, things can change any time. We may get new data. Well, many a scientific theory has bit the dust in light of new data. We may have an experiment that came out differently than what we thought. can be a game changer. We may have new hypotheses, new theories that come along to replace the one that we held to be true. Uh, this, anybody all know Cyril Karl Popper? He, get the, he got the sir. By the way, you know what country he's from. Okay. He got the sir for being probably the single best known and established philosopher of science in the 20th century. Okay? This is no menial player in the field. Uh, the book is called The Logic of Scientific Discovery. This is a quote from him. Science cannot prove anything. I'm always surprised at how controversial such a matter-of-fact statement is to some people. It is impossible for science to prove anything because science is based on experiments and observations, both of which can be flawed. Have we ever had science turn out not to be what we thought? Every darn day, okay? That's just the nature of it. Scientific measurements, he continues, can only disprove theories or be consistent with them. Any theory that is consistent with measurements, therefore we think we've proved it, we didn't, it could be disproved by future measurement. Now, some of you may know, story, know this story. This is, this is big news in the scientific community. Recently, the highly respected science magazine, Science, got taken to task for making this mistake. It's a very well-known story. May 6, 2011, Science Magazine ran an article in there with this title, At Long Last Gravity Probe B Satellite Proves Einstein Right. Now, what the heck is Gravity Probe B? Well, it's, what's the term there? Relatively gyroscope experiment. Do you remember that the general principle of relativity, general theory of relativity, was proven by observing an, a, an eclipse? Okay, and they could photograph the stars and they could see that the light of the stars bended, it distorted by gravity, and that proved, back in the early, early part of the 20th century, proved Einstein was right. Of course, this machine is a little more sensitive, and they were actually get very, very minute. So, Here's the problem. Charles Bennett, astronomer, physicist, John Hopkins University, major player in the field, writes a letter to the editor of Science Magazine. Uh, this is the comment that he makes. The article made me cringe. It's not a good thing. Editor does not want to hear that. I find myself frequently repeating to students and the public that science doesn't prove anything. Okay, the story continues. We got Colin Norman, editor of Science Magazine, admitting Bennett is completely correct. It's an important conceptual point. We blew it. Okay. This is the science community saying to us, from within science, it is not the job of science to prove anything. All scientific data, all scientific hypotheses, all scientific theories are always contingent. Nothing settled. Nothing is final, nothing is proved. Second myth, what about truth? You remember the, what was the TV show? The truth is out there. Come on, you didn't watch that? <laughs> what was the show? X-Files, come on. 
we are legion. Okay, we're out there. Yeah, that there's, there's truth out there. And so there's this conception out there that science is about truth. It's another oxymoron. Science does not care about truth. Science does not give a diddle about truth. Science does not pursue truth, does not care about truth, is not interested at all. The two terms, again, are an oxymoron. They are mutually incompatible. Science will never, true science, will never say that anything is true. It produces data, hypotheses, theorems, theories, and, you know, Neil Gershon, director of MIT Center for Bits and Atoms. Big player, okay, in the scientific community. Uh, the most common misunderstanding about science is that science seek to find truth. They don't. They make and test models. Building models is a very different thing from proclaiming truth. It's a never-ending process of discovery and refinement. Carlo Rilli, a quantum physicist, says this, a good science will never, a good scientist is never certain. A good scientist will be ready to shift to a different point of view if better elements of evidence or novel arguments emerge. Now, if science is not about truth, and science is not about proving anything, then the question on the floor is, what the heck is science? What's it really trying to do? Well, it's, it's fairly simple. Science is simply a way of observing the universe, the phenomena, the empirical sensory stuff that comes to us, and it reflects, asks questions about the nature of what is seen. It studies the order that is in nature through empirical or sensory evidence. Modern science operates through something called the scientific method. Now, I know we, we probably studied this like, what, third grade? But I, I need some remedial work, so I'm going to inflict you, okay? Uh, it begins with observation of the sensory empirical world. And it uses reason to ask and answer questions about what observed. You watch stuff, you look at stuff, whether it's subatomic particles or galaxies or plants or animal life, whatever it is, and as you're looking at this, questions emerge. I don't understand. Well, what about that? And so as questions emerge, you begin to process that. Reason is then used to create an hypothesis. Hypothesis has a very, very detailed definition. It's a tentative, possible idea to explain that which we, preserve, which we observe. Um, it might answer the questions arising from the observations. In other words, I'm looking at the data. I'm going, you know, I think what might be going on is this. Does that make it true? Not at all. We've got to then what? We then devise, carry out experiments to test the hypothesis. If it supports the data, we now have a theory, and that's the difference. A theory is a hypothesis that is supported by the data, and then we can move it. Now, do we have proof? No. But we move from hypothesis to a theory, what it might be. There's always going to be anomalies. I don't care what the theory is. The theory never fits all the data. True? There'll always be some anomaly out there going, you know, the, the, for example, um, with Sir Isaac Newton and his laws of gravity, it fit most of the information we live in. You probably know this story. Except it didn't fit the orbit of, Plato, of uh, Pluto, I mean, excuse me, Mercury. Mercury was an anomaly. Now, why was Mercury 
not following the laws of physics, Newton's laws of physics, and the laws of mechanics, okay? And that's what Einstein went after, and he began to tweak and to kind of work with. It took something new. Observations of phenomena that are not explained by the theory, and this is going to result in a new hypothesis. I've got a theory. It fits most of the data, but there's some data that doesn't fit. Okay, now, what about the data that doesn't fit? I've got a theory about that. And then we proceed. We go over and over and over. New cycle, new experiments, better theory, old theory dies, bites the dust, light a new family. Now, this means, and this is important, this is critically important for the relationship between science and faith, all scientific knowledge is by definition contingent. It's never absolute. There's never proof. It's given the data that we have, this is our best understanding of how to explain that data at the moment. Could change in two seconds. This is the modern world. Will change in two seconds, okay? Things are always evolving. Uh, it's subject to peer review. You've got to send it up. Th then this is a painful process, you know. For those of you who are in the academic community, you write it up, you stick it out there, and it gets shredded, you know, by everybody out there, you know, because they got their own pet theory that they want to put forward. And the results have to be, be able to be duplicated. Is it verifiable? You have this experiment, it produces this data. I have the same experiment, doesn't produce the same data. Big problem, okay? So it must be verifiable. The method of science means that there's clear limits to what science can do. And this is, this is very important. This is something known within the scientific community. It cannot do everything. It was never designed to do everything. Science is simply designed to make sense of the physical world, the physical universe, the empirical, the sensory, the material, material including energy, and to arrive at views that help explain how it works. Scientific knowledge is therefore limited to a certain arena, limited to that. Now, since there's limits to science, it cannot be used to understand everything. Science cannot be used to understand the totality of human existence. Not all questions are scientific, okay? That's just reality 101. Not all questions have empirical answers. A lot do, but not everything. It's important to our discussion because it means that we cannot, it means that science cannot, by definition, deal with that which lies beyond its domain. Now, its domain is pretty extensive, but not everything falls within it. It cannot deal with the non-empirical, the meta, the trans, the super. It cannot deal, by definition, with spirituality, with God, with revelation, anything like that, uh, in spite of some claims. This is one of my favorite book titles. This is one of the, what are called the New Atheist writing. The failed hypothesis how science shows, he very carefully avoids the word proves, but what does he mean, proves? Shows that God does not exist. To make a claim like that, you've left the realm of science and you've entered the realm of ideology, and in fact, that book is doing metaphysics in the name of science, which is an interesting phenomenon. Um, Something that it cannot do by definition. Science cannot tell us that the universe, why the universe exists. Science cannot tell us why we're here. Those are not scientific questions. Science can only deal with the objective, the outer world, the sensory. Now, like science, is religion limited? Uh-huh. Religion cannot answer all questions. Uh, 
We cannot show, for example, how the world works. For example, the famous Galileo story. Remember the bishop that Galileo quoted? Religion is about what? How to get to heaven, not how the heavens go. Okay? One is the realm of science. One is the realm of faith and religion. So, in principle, religion is not going to make authoritative statements about scientific matters. It's simply beyond our purview. Uh, religion has historically dealt with meaning, with the why questions, not the empirical or the how. Religion deals with what are called ontological questions, the deep questions a lot behind everything else about the purpose of life, the meaning of life. Why are we here? Why is anything here? Why does suffering exist? These are not scientific questions. They lie outside science, beyond science. They're not empirical. And they do not lend themselves to scientific inquiry. They do lend themselves to religious inquiry. So, big question, drum roll in the background. How does the method of science interface with faith and religion? Because the scope of science is by definition limited, in theory, there should be no conflict. In theory, and this is from science itself, there should be zero zip nada conflict between the realm that science moves in and the realm that religion moves in. They operate in entirely different areas. Now, this has been acknowledged by no less a group than the National Academy of Sciences. Here is a quotation from their, their statement. Religion and science answer different questions about the world. Whether there is a purpose to the universe or a purpose to human existence are not questions for science. Science is a way of knowing about the natural world. It is limited to explaining the natural world through natural causes. Science can say nothing about the supernatural. Whether God exists or not uh, is a question that science simply cannot answer. And I would add, doesn't care about because it simply falls outside the purview of that. Um, now, that's even been acknowledged by very famous scientists. Anybody ever heard this character called Werner Heisenberg? Okay, got a good German name here. Got to pronounce it V, not W. Uh, it's interesting. Most scientists make their discoveries in their 20s. Okay, and this is the Werner Heisenberg who changed the world with the uncertainty principle. One of the founders of quantum physics. I've never found it possible to dismiss the content of religious thinking as simply part of an outmodeled phase of the consciousness of, human, of mankind, a part that we shall have to give up from now on, which is one of the arguments that's out there. We've outgrown religion. Thus, in the course of my life, I have been com repeatedly compelled to ponder on the relationship of these two regions of thought. Clearly, he sees them as, as being reinforcing each other. For I've never been able to doubt the reality of which they point. He affirms scientific reality. <coughs> he affirms religious reality. So the question on the floor, if they're so different, something that science acknowledges, why is there a perception that they're in conflict? Well, it, it's a complicated issue, and there's a lot of answers for it. But this, we'll thin them out to just a few. First, this particular historical circumstances and personalities. Let's face it, some of God's critters are harder to get along with than others, okay? And there have been personalities in the realm of religion 
And there have been personalities in the realm of science who are just combative by nature. And they just love to pick a fight. And that, that accounts for some of the stuff that's going on. Another is, if science crosses over into the realm of religion and makes statements about faith, like there is no God, or if faith crosses over in the realm of science and, make, and starts pontificating about the physicality of the universe, you're going to have a conflict, simply they cross over. But what I want to look at, this, particularly this next week, is that the most common reason is that there is a phenomenon that was not originally a part of science. It emerged later, but now it's out there as a major player. It grew out of science, and many, many, many scientists would argue it has nothing to do with science. It is something called naturalism. Uh, now, it goes by many names. Empiricism, naturalism, same thing. It's also called materialism. You probably heard that one. It's called physicalism, and it's called scientism. Now, the ism at the end means the same thing in each word. It means only. Okay? Only the natural counts. Only the empirical counts. Only the material counts. So it's the essence of naturalism is to deny the reality of anything that's not empirical. Dawkins, in particular, and the new atheist go to town with this. They just flat out say, you know, does not exist because we don't. I love this, this uh, poster. God isn't a natural phenomenon. Ergo, God does not exist. You know, it's a logical kind of argument. For naturalism, only the pure, the material is real. All else is illusion, a word that Dawkins uses a lot. There is no transcendent, metaphysical, supernatural, spiritual, no God, no revelation, no soul. And you can just run that list all the way down. Nothing pertaining to faith and religion is remotely real because it cannot be quantified scientifically. It is not of empirical phenomena. Now, we'll look at this in detail next week, but there's a pretty good consensus that naturalism, this is a consensus within the scientific community, it's not universal, there's a debate, but naturalism is not science. But it is often presented as science, and it makes claims in the name of science. Uh, it is naturalism, not science itself, that is the primary source of conflict of faith. Matter of fact, if you remember that reading list, uh, one of the books is entitled Where the Conflict Actually Lies. And that book explores in depth this issue. So next week, we want to look at naturalism, the conflict between science and faith. And given that it looks like from a pure science viewpoint or a pure faith viewpoint, there shouldn't be a con conflict. What we want to look at is what's going on in our culture what's going on in our society with naturalism and what's being kicked around now.